Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand, and as always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will, and Emery. Tina, great to see you as always. Great to see you too, Joe. And Rich Lenkov of Bryce Downey and Lenkov. How's it going, Rich? Hey, Joe. We got a special announcement at the end of the show, but our next podcast. So the listeners and viewers got to stay tuned for that. Okay. All right. That's what we call a tease here in the business. <laughs> uh, Ronald Safer of Riley Safer Holmes and Kinsella is a former clerk of the U.S. District Court and former chief of the criminal division at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago. He's our first guest today. Ronald, thank you for being here. Pleasure to be with you. Well, we're talking about Mike Madigan, of course, uh, charged last week here in the Northern District uh, with 22 counts of federal racketeering uh, bribery charges. Uh, you know, we don't have enough time on our show to go through them in depth, but give our listeners and viewers sort of an overview of what the allegations are against the longest serving speaker in American political history. The allegations really are breathtaking in their depth and 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 with uh, they allege that the former speaker abused his office in almost every way you can, that he uh, traded his vote and support for legislation and for jobs for his cronies, that he extorted people who wanted to work with the legislature into hiring his law firm for legal services. You know, those are the main allegations, and that's pretty darn bad. So Ron, Madigan's attorneys deny these allegations, hinting that they will argue that the conduct described in the charges is just the way the business gets done in politics. Um, Given the context of Chicago politics, is this really a compelling argument, particularly given the culture of political corruption here? Or is that going to backfire like it did for Rod Blagojevich? I, I think you're exactly right, Tina. It's going to backfire. Uh, it, that this is business as usual is the least attractive uh, defense in a political corruption case in a town where politics is known for its corruption. Uh, Ron, you're former chief of the criminal division of the U.S. Attorney's Office. So, you know, we want you to bring us in the room. Uh, obviously, you know, this is not a charge or charges that were brought overnight. This has been the uh, completion or, you know, ongoing uh, uh, investigation for, for for many months. So how does that work behind the scenes? You know, when do you decide as a prosecutor to finally drop the hammer in a high profile case like this that's going to get on the front page of every newspaper, you know, certainly in the state and across the country? And as importantly, how important talk to us about how important it is to really go after the big fish from the seat of the U.S. Attorney's Office. You know, I, I'm going to tell you something, Rich, that you're not going to believe, your listeners aren't going to believe. 
But the fact that this is a high profile case and is going to find itself on the front pages of the Chicago Tribune make no difference in how the case is treated in the U.S. Attorney's Office. The second part of the question is exactly the 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 essence. It is always the U.S. Attorney's Office's goal to get to the highest person who is guilty of these crimes. So it's easy to indict the bag man, the person who is acting as the go-between, because there are always there's always lots of evidence against them, emails, tape recordings, etc. It's tough to indict the person who is insulated from that, but that is always the goal of the U.S. Attorney's Office, whether it's a drug conspiracy, whether it is a uh, medical fraud case or a political corruption case. But how do you decide, Rod? How do you decide when is the right time? That's what fascinates me, because, listen, you can investigate this stuff forever. To your point, there's thousands, if not millions of pages of documents to go through. How did uh, Laos decide that this was the right time last week? And like with Blagojevich, how did they decide that now we got to knock on, you know, the governor, the sitting governor's door at 6 a.m. while he's going out for a jog and nab him then? How do you make that decision? It's really, really important uh, issue. And it's a really uh, difficult question. Uh, it's one of judgment. Because you can investigate these cases to death. They could investigate the threads of this for another five years. But you've got to say, look, so clearly the Commonwealth Edison scheme in and of itself could have been indicted two years ago because uh, they indicted Commonwealth Edison. They could have indicted Madigan in that. But they said, no, we want to get the other pieces of this puzzle squared away first. They felt they had enough of those done so that they would go forward and pull the trigger. Well, Ron, similarly, you've defended many white collar defendants while you've been in private practice. Madigan's already hired a number of Canton attorneys. Um, his team's obviously getting to work right away. And so if you were in charge of this team, can you tell us about what the next few months would look like and what some of the challenges are that his team is likely to face? Another great question, Tina. You have to take what, first of all, they've been working on this case for five years, just like the government has. Uh, but what you have to do now, you know the charge. Before you're guessing at the charge, now you know the charge. So what you have to do is take both the big picture approach, and that is coming up with a theme that works, business as usual not the theme, that he was not involved, that he got no benefit, that nobody uh, on his team got a benefit. That's a theme. You have to land on the big picture theme. What are you going to tell the jury? The first sentence out of your mouth, ladies and gentlemen, this case is about what? Government overreaching. Uh, it's about a, a public servant who is wrongly accused. They, they have to figure that out. Then they have to attack each of the building blocks of the government's case. Beyond a reasonable doubt, very high burden of proof. You have to take if you take out a couple of those blocks, the building falls. 
Speaking of Ken, and this is the last question, unfortunately, because this is such fascinating stuff. And it's so great to have someone with your experience answering these questions. But the last question we have is, and by the way, Ken's already it's been reported that Ken has charged $2 million already following Madigan's resignation last February. Um, I can only imagine what the bill is going to be like in this kind of case. So, I mean, not that we on this show have any problem with, you know, charging clients for money because that's what we do. But it's got to set a record. I imagine by the end of this trial, it's going to set a record for uh, charges in a criminal defense case. But my question to you is, um, how, you know, when you're dealing with a high profile defendant like this, someone who, again, was the longest serving person in his role, in the history of this country, his ego is not small, right? Do you sit him down and say, this is how it's going to be? Or does he tell you this is how it's going to be? I'm fascinated by that dynamic because obviously, you know, at some point you might have to tell him, listen, buddy, you're my client, but this is not going to go the way you want it to go because of the mounds of evidence against you. It's a collaborative process. You have to work together on it. But as a white collar attorney, you have an advantage in that nobody is really familiar with the criminal justice system. Mm. This is the only time Mike Madigan is ever going to touch the criminal justice system. It's the only time most of your high profile defendants have ever touched him. Bredoliak did it a couple of times, but most only do it once. They listen. They want you. They want your judgment. I have been involved in the criminal justice system. The Catton lawyers have been involved in the criminal justice system for 30 years. The client, you know, Mike Madigan is a shrewd man. He wants the benefit of that experience and he's going to listen and he's going to heed their advice. Again, that's Ronald Safer. Find out more about his firm at rshc-law.com. Ronald, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Up next, we'll cover the trial that's accusing four men of plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan with John Smetanka. Stay tuned on Legal Faceoff. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff. Our next guest is John Smitanka of the Smitanka Law Group with over 45 years focusing on law. John, thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure. John, you're a former federal prosecutor, so we're talking today about the trial that just uh, began today. Opening statements are today. After picking a jury yesterday in Western Michigan, this is, of course, uh, a trial where prosecutors are attempting to uh, show that four men who plotted to 
kidnap Michigan's governor uh, in response to her steps to slow down the COVID mask mandate uh, in the early months of the pandemic. Um, Two out of the six men that were allegedly involved have agreed to testify uh, against their alleged co-conspirators. How important do you think their testimony will be in the prosecutor's attempt to find them guilty? Well, it's, it's extremely important because it, it shows a picture uh, from within. It's a, it's a video picture, so to speak, within this group as to what they were talking about and uh, how they're going to go about doing it. So it's a very important uh, part. So, John, what is the entrapment defense, which is obviously a critical piece to the puzzle of this case? What exactly is the entrapment defense and how persuasive do you think it will be for this jury? Well, that's the problem. This case probably is decided already in a sense because it's picking the jury that is the key uh, to an entrapment defense. In the federal court system, which is different than the Michigan courts, you look at it's called the subjective test. Did this person or these persons have uh, the, uh, the ability, the intent to commit a crime before and despite any actions by the government to, ins, uh, to, uh, to instigate it. That's the key. Did they, were they predisposed to commit whatever f- offenses they've been charged with um, without any, in, any instigation by the, by the federal government? Now, that can be either official government agents, such as the FBI, or their informants, their prosecutors, and so on. So it's different in the state system uh, where some of the other defendants in this case are being tried. But in the federal case, it's the subjective test. Did were they predisposed to commit these crimes? So it's very interesting. And I want to explore that a little bit more because, you know, we don't I think a lot of lay people don't understand entrapment, you know, very much. We certainly haven't covered it too much on our podcast over eight years. In this case, to your point, there are a number of you know, seemingly persuasive pieces of evidence that the defense will rely on in arguing that their clients were duped by the government, right? That they were, uh, you know, paid for a lot of the expenses involved. They paid for hotel, travel, meals, that they organized some of the events, that they were active on social media. By they, I mean agents of the federal government or, um, you know, informants. So how do you think the prosecution will use will counter that defense? And how strongly do you think that will appeal to the jury? Well, it's, it's like in any you know, major conspiracy, uh, drugs, uh, uh, fraud, gr- government corruption, whatever it is. Uh, what they're, what they're going to be looking at is, well, these are not the nicest people necessarily in the whole world. And they were predisposed to commit the crime. Oh, by the way, they deal with uh, we, we have to deal with them as they find them. And so the government agents or informants uh, have to work in that world. And that's this is the world they have to deal in. And uh, you hear this over and over again in drug cases. Well, in a drug case, uh, uh, drug conspiracy, uh, what do you expect to find? Angels uh, getting inside of these organizations? Whether or not they can convince the jury of that. Remember, this is a jury issue. This is not a judge issue. In the state courts, it's a, it's a judge issue at the beginning of the, uh, the case. In this case, if the, the defense can make their points and get the judge to agree that a reasonable jury could, could 
uh, find that uh, this, the, these men were entrapped, the jury will then get the question. It's, it's, uh, uh, and they will decide it as part of their verdict. So, John, like many of these cases um, involving the insurrection of January 6th, much of the evidence relies on social media. How crucial do you think that will be in this case? Uh, in this particular case, I don't think it will be nearly as important as it was uh, in any of the cases that are J- January 6th cases, uh, because these folks are on tape. They're on video. They're, this is it's their voices, their image, and they've got to explain how they were entrapped to be used pointing guns and tra- training and going up and doing a surveillance up at the, uh, the governor's uh, house, apparently, and their their uh, their maps that were drawn of the of the area and of the of the uh, the governor's uh, summer home. These are things that are not really social media. They're this is what they really have at the heart of this case. It's uh, can you explain away why you're out pointing guns at people and and talking about buying a, a weapon of mass destruction? John, last two questions here on Legal Faceoff. You've been uh, in your distinguished career on both sides, uh, both as a prosecutor and as a uh, defense attorney representing white collar criminal defendants. Um, what would be your perspective if you were representing these individuals on uh, whether they should testify? Number one, that's something we've covered extensively in our show and we've seen in high profile cases lately over the last year or so. You know, examples of that going well and examples of that going not so well, number one. And number two, how, again, the jury's been selected, but how would you go about selecting a jury in this case, given how widespread the publicity surrounding this case has been, both locally and, you know, even internationally? The age-old question is, how do you find 12 people who not have not heard of this case? That's impossible. But 12 people who could put aside any preconceived notions of guilty or not guilty and listen only and decide only on the evidence based uh, based on what they hear at trial? Well, to start with the first question, how can they avoid the publicity? How can they get a jury that can and uh, will get beyond the publicity? Uh, you're actually right, but you're also partially wrong. It's amazing how fast people let things go out of their, their mind. They're focusing on the war in Ukraine. They're focusing on gas prices. They're focusing on COVID or people they knew who died of COVID or whatever. So these issues flush out some of the the issues that started this case uh, in 2020. Now, uh, I can't remember the second the, the second of your questions was... The second question is whether you would have your clients testify if they were, uh, if you were representing them. <laughs> they may have to. There's so much of their image in videos and in uh, conversations that are tape recorded. They're going to have to get up, I think. I mean, it's hard to say this, but uh, they may have to get up and show whatever different perspective they have. I know we said last question, we got a couple more minutes. I want to get your perspective on one more issue in this case. Gretchen Whitmer, again, the governor of Michigan, who was the subject of this uh, alleged plot, um, she has, by the last time I checked, uh, a 47.6 favorable rate, 39.6 unfavorable in Michigan. Certainly, uh, you know, has been at the forefront over the last couple of years of governor's uh, response to COVID-19. How much do you think 
her popularity or lack of popularity in that part of Michigan will play into this verdict. Ideally, you would like to think that jurors could only base their decision on the evidence. And it doesn't matter if they like or dislike Gretchen Whitmer. Of course, you know, as well as anyone, that uh, popularity of your clients in high profile cases means a lot. So could you comment on that? Well, in, in this situation, her uh, views or her actions, which since 2020, uh, during the period, this period of, uh, of her uh, uh, her term as governor, have not. It's not only COVID that has dealt her some negatives in her uh, her popularity. It's just a whole series of things which happened in her administration. So. You, to some extent, because it's a governor, there's things in the back of people's heads mm-hmm. that they remember. And how they can get it out of their heads is something which um, it may be, as you say, impossible, except they've, they say that they can. And once again, there's a great uh, example in the uh, case in, Phil- in uh, Pennsylvania back in the days of uh, uh, um, the war protesters in the Vietnam War. They had to pick a jury there, the most extensive cross-examination and examination of, of the prospective jurors and background checks. And they ended up, this is the Berrigan Brothers trial, when they ended up, the jury came into the, uh, that and they had picked mostly favorable uh, defense witnesses or defense jurors. And they walked into the jury room and one of the fellows uh, slammed his door shut and slammed his hand on the table and says, I'm going to convict the no goods SOBs. Uh, They're guilty as hell until you people come around. So this was a person who was a favorable juror after all kinds of examination. I don't know what examination they've done in this particular case. That is the prosecution of the defense of the prospective jurors. But um, there's there's an awful lot out there. That is in the back of people's heads, positive and negative. Yes, her her popularity is below 50 percent now, and it was below 50 percent when uh, this all happened back in 2020. Again, that's John Smitenka of Smitenka Law Group. Find out more about that at Smitenka Law, S-M-I-T-A-N-K-A law.com. Also catch his weekly radio segment with respect on Sundays and Thursdays at WSJM or wherever you find your podcast. John, thanks again for the time today. Thank you very much, fellas. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast. Enrico Mirabelli is our next guest, partner of Bierman LLP and highly regarded family law attorney with experience at the Illinois State Bar Association Board of Governors. Enrico, thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure. So, Enrico, last week, former Deputy General Counsel George Smyrniades filed a lawsuit against Mayor Lightfoot and the city of Chicago. It's a defamation suit relating to comments that Mayor Lightfoot made to him in the context of 
attempts to settle another case filed by the Joint Civic Committee of Italian Americans, who is your client. Um, that case was filed against the Chicago Park District after the mayor had ordered that various Christopher Columbus statutes be removed. Smirniatis claims that he was forced to resign as a result of what has been characterized as a tirade by the mayor with some very inflammatory comments that she allegedly said. As the attorney representing the Joint Civic Committee, can you provide our listeners with a little bit more detail about what these two cases are about? I, I can. Uh, the first case where I represent the Joint Civic Committee of Italian Americans has to do with a statue that was in the Regal Park of Christopher Columbus. In 1966, the uh, Park District established this plaza called the Columbus Plaza. And in 1966, they dedicated this statue. The statue has been around since 1892. It was here for the Columbian Exposition. The statue sat there until 1973, at which point the Park District and a group called the Columbus Statue Committee entered into a contract that said the statue would remain in perpetuity. And in return, that committee gave money to the Park District and we have a contract. So my suit has to do with, when I say my suit, the Joint Civic Committee of Italians, American suit, has to do with enforcing the contract. It says you're going to maintain the statue in that plaza in perpetuity. That's all we want. Put the statue back. As along the way, we named the mayor as a respondent in discovery because we weren't really sure initially who actually took the statue down, who actually made the decision. But we found out that, according to the Park District, the mayor did it. So we converted the mayor from a respondent in discovery to an actual defendant over the objection of the city. So as that suit is progressing and the claim against the mayor is that she interfered with the contract. It's kind of like if you had a contract with somebody else and your neighbor then comes onto your property and, and disrupts your contract. So you sue the neighbor for interfering with the contract. So it's like tortious interference, right? Yes. And, and we not only allege that she interfered with the contract, we allege that she's continuing to interfere with the contract. And therein now comes George's lawsuit. And the quote I had given was presuming these allegations that the mayor said all the pleadings have to go through the corporation council, that you can't make any move, that you can't do anything. And uh, as the lawsuit alleges uh, by Mr. Smirniotis, there were, we were very close to working out a deal and resolving the lawsuit until, according to George, the mayor put the kibosh on it. So I'm sort of on the outside of that case looking in, but I say that case supports what we've been saying is that the mayor has been interfering all along with our contract. All right. So the comments that have been reported widely now uh, involving, again, inflammatory language, um, you know, she comments that, uh, that this might be a, uh, a male genitalia measuring contest. And, you know, I, I, she didn't use quite that term, allegedly. Um, but like, what do you what do you think the mayor is doing here? I mean, to your point, uh, you know, you're alleging that the mayor is only continuing to interfere and make your case stronger. Do you think this is just an example of Mayor Lightfoot trying to assert her power over people that she thinks shouldn't be involved? I mean, uh, you know, certainly she can't want additional negative publicity or lawsuits like this. So what do you think is going on here? You know, you're asking me to speculate. And so I'm going to tread very lightly. 
I let me just say, I think being the mayor of the city of Chicago is a very important position. It's a very difficult job, especially in these days. It's very difficult. But what I I, I, I can't explain why the mayor, assuming, let's assume she said what George said, she said. And there were eight people on that Zoom call, as far as I know. So there are seven other witnesses to what she said. Now, why she said that, why she went about it that way, that's a question you have to ask the mayor of the city of Chicago. All I can tell you is it gives credence to my allegation that she's interfering with my contract, my client's contract. And the park district is a separate taxing body politic. The city of Chicago is a separate tax. I mean, look at your tax bill when you get your real estate tax bill. You're paying taxes to the park district. So what right does the mayor have legally and technically to tell the park district what they can or cannot do with the statute? That, that's part of my lawsuit. Enrico, I mean, you've highlighted a couple of things. Let's talk about what the mayor's rationale is here. You're trying to enforce a contract. Obviously, her rationale for all of this is trying to stem the clashes that were happening between the police and protesters, which in her mind were incited by the statue and is against the backdrop of other similar monuments in other places coming down across the country. Now, we don't know if those involve contracts um, locally as well, but in your mind, um, how can a, how can there be a delicate balance struck given what her purported um, influences in terms of why she claims to have done this in the first instance and the fact that you're trying to enforce a contract? How can you strike a balance? I, I, again, you're, I'm a little bit out of my uh, my ballpark here, let's say, or my wheelhouse, because I'm not a politician. I'm a lawyer. But it would seem to me that there's a right way to do things. And taking down the statue in the middle of the night without consulting with anyone I know her press release said that she consulted with stakeholders. She has yet to identify who those stakeholders were. They certainly were not the Joint Civic Committee of Italian Americans because the contract itself says the statue shall not, the statue in the plaza shall not be substantially modified without the consent of the Columbus Statue Committee. And if that doesn't exist, then the JCCIA. Well, we have stepped into the shoes of that committee. So I think if you have this issue and you want to do it right, I mean, she forms her monument committee. That's wonderful. Hasn't given a report yet, but you, you need to give input to the people who feel they have an interest in this statue or any other statue. Give everybody a chance to be heard. Try to do it through a democratic process. Um, if, if you let the minority, the vocal minority now make rules and, and take over, uh, I, I think that's a bad thing. I, that's not how this country is founded on majority rule. We can't let the minority, vocal as they might be, now dictate how we're going to treat everybody else's rights. Last question here on Lego Faceoff. Why is uh, the statue so important to your clients uh, and how do they answer criticism that Christopher Columbus is not a figure that should be celebrated with a statue because of you know uh, his role in colonization of uh, North America, et cetera. How, please address th those two issues. Well, again, this would be something probably Ron Onesti could better address, but I've heard Ron say it often. It's about Christopher Columbus as a symbol to the Italian-Americans. It's something that recognizes Italian-Americans' contribution to this country. 
And we all know that, you know, Columbus Day became a federal holiday after the 1891 lynchings, which took place down in uh, New Orleans. And so this holiday has been here. The Italian-Americans identify with it. This idea that Christopher Columbus was somehow a bad guy and, and you know, created all sorts of um, issues later on. Uh, historically, I, I've read things about Christopher Columbus, about what a devout Catholic he was, that he adopted an a indigenous child, that he wasn't directly responsible. I mean, that's a debate that's going to continue. But for the Italian-Americans, we see this as a symbol and of our pride and our heritage. So it's important to us. Again, that's Enrico Mirabelli of Beerman LLP. Find out more about that at Beerman. That's B-E-E-R-M-A-N-N-Law.com. Enrico, thanks so much for the insight. Thank you, Joe. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Welcome back. Tom DeVore is running for Attorney General of Illinois. He joins us on the Legal Faceoff podcast. Tom, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So, Tom, last month you announced that you're running for Illinois Attorney General. You had been running for judge in the Fifth Appellate District Court race before you decided to switch races. So what made you decide to make the switch? Watching the change of behavior of parents and children after Judge Grishow entered her order on February 4th, just watching the momentum and the courage of all of those parents and kids standing up for their rights. And I just at that time, I was moved by their actions and felt that I might be able to to help them more as an attorney general than as a judge and making sure that that type of, of courage to stand up for liberty and, and freedom is is preserved in our state. That's the reason. Tom, two things on the mask uh, lawsuit victories that you attained, because they were really quite, you know, historic, whether you agree with the policy or not. The fact that you are, by my account, and it's no, certainly not scientific, I think the first such victory, legal victory uh, against a governor or chief executive enforcing mask mandates. Um, how'd you do it? You know, briefly, uh, what was the legal strategy? And number two, what's your comment on the pushback today? by the Chicago Teachers Union against CPS announcing that effective Monday, 
uh, all public schools will go maskless in accordance with uh, the, uh, the, the court ruling that you accomplished? Okay. Well, first and foremost, the issue of being successful in arguing this matter in front of the court against the governor's mandate, keep in mind that, that this was never really about masks and whether masks are good or bad. It's about our foundation of government and how we go about putting those policies in place. And so to the extent that masking of our students was necessary to preserve public health, that was a legislative function. And the legislation that's on the books right now doesn't allow for that. Uh, in the manner of which the governor was trying to accomplish it. That's what the court found. So to that extent, the rule of law was upheld and the separation of powers is intact. And to the extent we need those policies in the future, I would encourage the legislature to uh, convene and actually pass a law that would allow it. Then I think we have a different conversation. As to the Chicago Teachers Union, I have kind of the same comments. You know, they have a collective bargaining agreement that has an invalid provision in it. It's not enforceable. You know, the teachers union and the school district cannot negotiate the constitutional rights of children away. Not only are they children, they're not a party to the contract. So that whole provision is unenforceable. The mayor knows it. The school district lawyers know it. And to the extent that the teachers union thinks they need math policies in their school, I would respectfully tell them again, go see your legislature because you're not trying you're not accomplishing it in a lawful manner. So, Tom, let's look at who you're up against um, for the GOP nomination. You're up against Steve Kim. Why do you think you are the better candidate? Again, I don't think I'm a better candidate than anybody. You will never see me in, in my political career, let's call it, because I'm not a politician. I have nothing bad to say about Mr. Kim. I have nothing bad to say against Mr. Shostokas. To the extent that people think that those gentlemen are qualified for that position, I'm fine with that. So, you know, I have conducted myself the last two years and trying to protect people's rights and liberties and would continue to do so if elected attorney general. Uh, again, other than that, I'm not going to say I'm more qualified than either of those men. I just know what I'm all about. And if the people think that serves them best, then I would encourage them to consider me. How do you handle the legal affairs of the citizens of Illinois as compared, if elected, as compared to Kwame Rule? Uh, certainly, I imagine you have uh, some feelings on how you differ from the current sitting attorney general who you'll have to beat uh, to 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 take his job. Absolutely. There's two two primary issues. One, uh, when Governor Pritzker started issuing his mandates and that was supported by the attorney general's office, if I was attorney general, that would not be the case. Uh, attorney General Raul had to make a choice. Do I defend the governor's actions against the people or I defend the people against the governor's actions? And if I was attorney general, I would have defended the people against that overreach by the governor's office and would have demanded that the legislature do something if they wanted to put those policies in place. That's where I believe the attorney general made a mistake. Beyond that, we have a bigger issue of the issue of corruption, in my opinion. And when I see uh, charges being brought by the federal government against uh, politicians in our state. I find that disheartening where I believe we should be taking those matters into our own hands. And I would have liked to have seen the attorney general address those things himself. So to the extent I'm attorney general, uh, not only will the governor not find support in his mandates uh, from the attorney general's office, if I'm leading it, uh, the corruption in this state will be addressed directly by us and not looking to the federal prosecutors. Tom, you're from downstate Illinois. Uh, most of our listeners are familiar with the differences between, you know, south of, uh, uh, you know, southern part of the state and, and the northern part. Um, 
But if they're not, could you tell us how being a downstate attorney, how you would deal with some of the issues that we face up here in the northern part of the state? And in particular, you know, crime. How would you deal with uh, crime, particularly in Chicago and burgeoning now in the suburbs of Chicago? You know, that's a good question. And and first I would say is that I've had a lot of opportunity to spend in the North here recently. And I don't think we're that different. You know, that whole uh, presentation that Southern Illinois differs from Northern Illinois, I'm not convinced. I mean, uh, other than there's more people, I think people have a lot of similarities to the extent of the crime that's going on in the suburbs. The you know, from what I read again, and I have to be more involved to understand it, that the state's attorney of Cook County is uh, not prosecuting those to the satisfaction of law enforcement. I talked to a lot of law enforcement officials that are, are dissatisfied with how that's being handled. So if I'm attorney general, to the extent that we can use our office to help make sure that crime uh, is properly prosecuted, I would be more than interested in doing that. So just one last question. So let's pick up on that point. You know, it sounds like you certainly look at the role of government generally as you know, stay in your lane, right? Don't legislate from the bench. Don't legislate from the executive office and certainly don't legislate from the AG's office. Uh, it sounds like. So applying that to what you would do, um, you know, do you see any do you see any roles for the attorney general to be more activist or do you see the attorney general more of a, you know, chief executive of the legal community of Illinois, leaving it to people like local state's attorneys and local prosecutors to uh, accomplish some of those goals? First and foremost, absolutely. You have to, you know, you have to leave it to those local jurisdictions and, and stay in your lane is a good way to put it. You know, we and, and the attorney general's office should do what they can to ensure that the system of government functions the way that it's supposed to function. You don't have executives taking too much power from the legislature. You don't have the legislature. And, and we can get into that later. Crafting rules of how they proceed in the legislature that, in my opinion, some of the rules of our the way our House of Representatives works probably is unconstitutional and due process is really uh, being squashed in their last minute bills and changes of that nature. But but, yeah, you have to rely upon those other branches of government to do their job. And and I would not see the role of attorney general's office to be an activist. I mean, I don't think it's appropriate, but making sure that everyone is performing their duties lawfully and constitutionally is where that office needs to uh, you know, focus itself. Again, that's Tom DeVore. He's running for attorney general of Illinois. Find out more about his campaign at Tom DeVore. That's D-E-V-O-R-E. Also on his Facebook page as well. Tom, thanks again for the insight. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Welcome back to the Legal Face-Off podcast. And it's time for the Legal Grab Bag, where we go through a various amount of different law topics throughout the nation and sometimes even the world. Our two guests today, we start with Steve Carmen of SIU Resource Group and a friend of the podcast. How's it going, Steve? It's going fine. Thank you. Along with Dustin Siebert, Chicago journalist. You can follow him on Twitter at Justice2K. Dustin, thanks for joining us on such late notice. Glad to be here. Rich, we start with some things that happened on Monday, and that being the U.S. Supreme Court quietly announcing that it will not review Bill Cosby's sexual assault case. Yeah, before we get into that, Dustin and I know each other, uh, Joe, because Dustin, when he was working uh, for the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, interviewed me for a story about my uh, 
my involvement in my love for horror movies. And that's uh, something that we both share. So at, maybe at the end of the show, we'll do our around the horn segment. And we'll talk about everyone's way on everyone's favorite horror movie of all time. So stay tuned for that. But uh, yeah, the first story, Joe is uh Supreme Court uh, on Monday declined without comment, which isn't that unusual to uh, review the uh, Bill Cosby case, which uh, of course led to him being freed uh, after he was found guilty by a Pennsylvania jury of uh, sexual assault and, and rape. Actually, um, he was let go after serving just a portion of that uh that uh, that sense, because the appellate court ruled that the circumstances surrounding his admission, his confession uh, violated his due process rights. In short order, what happened was he gave testimony in a civil lawsuit in which he admitted to sexually assaulting and raping uh, using drugs, various women. He did so. Because the agreement that allegedly, well, in fact, the court decided he entered into with the prosecutor gave him immunity from criminal prosecution in exchange for admitting to that in the civil lawsuit. Well, guess what? Uh, the new prosecutor came into office and said, that's not my number one. There was no such agreement. And number two, even if there was an agreement, it wasn't in writing and it wasn't me. So I don't care about that agreement. I'm going to use Cosby's own deposition testimony against him in the criminal case. Uh, guess what? That admission, as you might not be surprised to hear, resulted in the jury finding him guilty because he admitted in so many words to uh, having sex with women without their consent. Well, he filed an appeal and he argued that that's not fair, that uh, I was duped, right? That the prosecutor, I only admitted to this because the prosecutor promised me the deal and it should follow the prosecution's office regardless of who's in that office. Uh, and the court agreed and the Supreme Court what we're talking about on Monday said, we're not going to touch it again. They didn't say anything, but they agreed not to review it. So short answer is Cosby's now a free man. And uh, the issue is over. A lot of people, of course, uh, are very unhappy with that decision. and was hoping, and we're hoping that the Supreme court would take the issue up. Uh, some call it a technicality. I personally think that it's the right decision, no matter how much you revile what Cosby did and maybe him himself, which I do. The fact is he had an agreement with a prosecutor to, incriminate himself. Uh, and it's hard to just change that deal because there's a new prosecutor. in. so Tina, you know, we might not like the idea that uh, Bill Cosby is free, but it's probably the right thing under the constitution, in my opinion. I mean, I agree because as lawyers, we uphold laws. And you know what I mean? So like when you look at what the basic foundation is of this country and the notion of due process, um, I agree with you, Rich. The thought, though, of someone as who has done deplorable acts like he has and who's actually now contemplating going on a farewell tour, you know, along the likes of like Elton John, for example. I mean, that whole notion, I, I, I just find it really horrific. But at the end of the day, we have a constitution, we have due process and there's not much you can do taking at face value the facts as we as we know them, which is that he was there was an agreement that it wasn't going to be used against him. I mean, yes. I, I think that, that that makes it very simple, but it's a terrible outcome. Steve Cosby actually still faces civil uh, civil suits. And of course, you know, the 
penalty in a civil suit is monetary damages. Uh, one could never think that monetary damages are sufficient to hold Cosby responsible for the numerous women that have been proven to be victims of his sexual uh, abuse and rape. Nonetheless, you know, some might see that as some degree of justice that he still will have to face his accusers, albeit in a civil court. Rich, it's just one of these legal cases where the justice, and I think the decision was right, does not meet up with some reality. That's uh, against some uh, justice for these ladies who clearly deserve it. I just, I feel a real sense of sadness there. I really do. Yeah, Dustin, what are your thoughts on this? I don't know if anyone, Dustin, you or if anyone else saw the recent uh, CNN four-part documentary uh, on Cosby. Real, I, I watched it with great fascination. Really interesting, really well made. Um, but uh, what are your thoughts on this on this decision? Yeah, you know that that documentary is actually on my two to watch list. Um, as a general rule, I think when it comes to Cosby and, and other high profile situations where there's a lot of um, you know, there's a lot of public consternation about all of the things that happen. Um, I do believe that there is uh, and I kind of agree with you. There's the, the legal precedent and there's how we feel about it emotionally. There are people who feel that Cosby should you know, be under the, the prison until the day that he dies, um, you know, just from an emotional standpoint. But like you said, a deal's a deal. And this is, you know, I, I don't have a legal background. And I, and so I can't I can speak more, I don't know, emotionally or just, you know, I, how I feel about it off the top of my head. But my general sentiment about Bill Cosby is that he's probably not long for the world. You know, I know he's older and I don't think that he's he's well. And I also don't think that a farewell tour will gain any traction. I don't think he'll ever have a platform in which he will be allowed to, you know, have this tour and and and, and, and be able to do something with it. So I, I am OK with the idea of, of, of Bill being let out of prison and kind of living the twilight of his life and infamy somewhere on the side. And, and, and he'll be forgotten about until he basically passes away. Like, I, I don't think it's a miscarriage of justice that he's, you know, out walking the streets right now. Sticking with the U S Supreme court, rich on Friday, they reinstated the death sentence of the Boston marathon bomber. Yeah. So, you know, one could never uh, know exactly what goes on in the minds of the justices when they uh, decide without comment to not take up Cosby and then uh, issue a ruling on Sarnayev. But uh, they did so on Friday by a 6-3 uh, ruling that followed the conservative majority. You know, all the conservatives were in the majority on this, and they felt that uh, despite the fact that two issues existed in the uh, sentencing of Tsarnaev, who, of course, is the younger brother the other brother died um, in the shootout, but the younger brother is now in jail following the Boston uh, bombing in which he was convicted of killing three people. Uh, the court held that despite the fact that the jury didn't hear uh, 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 maybe all of the information um, about pretrial publicity and also that the jury didn't hear this possibly mitigating evidence of the older brother being involved in another uh, crime, a very high profile crime in Boston, uh, which would have supported the defense theory that the younger brother, uh, Joe Carr, was only a dupe, was, you know, was duped by his brother, 
despite the fact that the jury didn't hear that evidence, the court held that they got a free, they got a fair trial um, and that they should be subject to the verdict that was imposed, the sentence that was imposed by the jury, which was the death penalty. It's interesting, though, uh, Tina, that um, the federal government, the Biden administration, through the U.S. Att- the uh, attorney general's office was advocating for the reimposition of the sentence, in this case, which was the death penalty. Yet that same administration imposed when Biden came into office a moratorium federally on the death penalty. So it's unclear now that the death penalty has been reinstated in this case, how that will affect uh, uh, his penalty going forward. I agree, Rich. I mean, this is another one where it's really kind of a tough circumstance, right? I mean, it's you've got his brother who's dead. There's evidence that seems to indicate that he may have been the mastermind and duped his younger brother, who's now sentenced to death. I mean, my guess is, based on what I've seen, that he is going to um, succumb to the death penalty. And the question is, when is that going to happen? It may be many years from now, given this moratorium that's in the mix. Yeah, Dustin, what I mean, you know, it's hard to understand what the victims of the Boston Marathon bombing go through when they, you know, maybe see some justice imposed by a jury in Boston and then that to be overturned again over what many consider to be a technicality, which you know we also just talked about in the Cosby case, although that is a bigger constitutional issue. But if you're uh, one of the members of the jury or uh, members of the victim's families, do you feel that there's some justice to the reimposition of the death penalty? Of course, you know, many think that even victims will tell you that just because you kill someone who killed my relative doesn't make it any better, doesn't make me feel any better. So, of course, it's a complicated issue. But any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's one of those things that depends on 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 your moral axiom. Right. So. You know, how do you feel about the, the death penalty? How do you feel about the, the, the government's ability to take a life for any reason? Um, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're asking me personally, I believe, obviously, it has been proven time and again that the, that the death penalty is, is, a, is a, a biased, unbalanced um, institution here in America and probably elsewhere in the world. And for that reason, maybe it shouldn't exist. But then on a, on a moral level, do I have a problem with the execution of uh, Zokar? Is that how you pronounce his name? Yes. And I don't I don't necessarily think that it is the worst thing in the world if, if he is ultimately put to death. If I'm, if I'm a family member um, and I've never been in a situation like that where I've had a, a, a close loved one uh, taken from me. So it's difficult for me to say how I would feel. But I think from from the outside looking in, I'd be like, all right, you know, I don't I don't mind, you know, if we have just this wellspring of evidence that he did what he did and that he had a choice not to do it. And it was, you know, cold blooded or whatever. And I would be okay with him being put to death. Yeah. Steve, one of the uh, victims of the bombing uh Mark Fukurile, who lost his right leg in the second blast, said that the Supreme Court did the right thing and that the three dissenting justices should be ashamed. Yeah, I got to tell you, Rich, I think this case is right where it should be in our system. That's getting a constant review, which is what any defendant deserves. But at the end of the day, the evidence is so overwhelming here that I agree with Tina. I think he'll be put to death. And I think that is the right call. 
Moving on, Tina, WNBA star Brittany Griner is detained in Russia on drug charges and could be facing 10 years in prison. Yeah, so late last month, as you mentioned, Joe, Brittany Griner was detained in Russia on her way back to New York. And she was detained by customs officials at the airport, which is right outside of Moscow, uh, when they said that they found through a drug sniffing dog cannabis oil and vaping cartridges. Um, this is being framed as a potential drug smuggling case by Russian officials. They've opened a criminal investigation and they're framing this as a significant amount of narcotic substances that she had in her luggage. Um, as many know, she is um, a terrific athlete, you know, internationally renowned. She's one of any number of athletes who regularly play in Russia, given the significantly higher earning potential that many athletes have when compared to the U.S. She's apparently the only U.S. athlete that remains in Russia at this time. Clearly, given everything that's been going on between Russia and the Ukraine and the worldwide reaction to it, including the U.S. Um, and, and its reaction to Russia, a lot of businesses are pulling out. This happening to Griner against this backdrop is, is terrible. Um, there are, there's reports that no one really knows what her detention status is or even where exactly she is within Russia. Um, we don't even know exactly how long she's been there. Um, a member of the U.S. House Armed Services Committee said, at least as of right now, given the U.S. and Russia relations, it's going to be very difficult to get her out. Um, unfortunately, also another um, aspect to this unfortunate situation is that Russia has very strict LGBT rules and laws, which could impact her case. Um, they've passed LGBTQ related legislation and actually outlawed propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations around minors. So this is a horrible situation. Her wife has gone public and said that she's very worried and it's understandable. Griner is one of a number of U.S. citizens that are currently being detained in Russia for various reasons, Rich. Yeah, it's rough. Obviously, I mean, you know, uh, we all thought that the video was recent when it was released a couple of days ago, but it was three weeks ago, which is pretty troubling. Uh, yesterday, there was another you know, picture of her mugshot released. But, man, of course, this is being uh, used as a as a uh, political tool in the in the invasion. And, you know, what struck me also when you hear that, you know, I didn't know so many WNBA players play in Russia because it's lucrative. I mean, we talked last episode just about the uh, fight for equality in women's soccer. Like, how bad is uh, equality when it comes to women's sports in this country when you got to go to Russia to get paid? <laughs> Russia, right? I mean, come on. I mean, that's rough that we can't pay WNBA players, uh, you know, a basic wage for them not to have to go to friggin' Russia. Like, Russian athletes are famous. Have you ever seen like any of the stories on the planes that athletes use to go different places in Russia? It's like 1950s era, you know, aircraft being held together by chicken wire and duct tape. So it's, it's pretty rough that that's, uh, that's the case, but yeah, I mean, Steve, uh, Russia has like a 95% conviction rate for crimes across the board. Not exactly uh, a bastion of due process and, 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 and constitutional liberties. Yeah, that's right, Rich. I've handled some cases out of there on some investigations. I did reach out to a contact they have there with the police very high up. I don't want to obviously see who that is because they would get in trouble. 
We do speak very frankly. He does uh, admit the cases are more political than criminal. And this particular case, and again, I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know if she's guilty or not. I hope she's not. But I agree with Tina, though. If she is guilty, even if she's not, it could not happen in a worse time for her. Dustin, uh, you know, this case plays a little bit into our next story with Calvin Ridley. And listen, uh, in this country, we would never stand for this. But, you know, there is an argument to be made that, like in Calvin Ridley, you know the rules. And, you know, of course, you know, keeping someone detained in Russia for a minor violation like this is nuts. But in the first place, why are you bringing any amount of drugs into Russia at this time of all times? Yeah. So, I mean, and that, and that's really what it boils down to. Like I've, you know, I grew up watching Midnight Express and Broke Down Palace and, and movies like that, where, you know, I, it, it, it was very clear to me that like, don't like, don't even deal with any amount of like, I mean, who was the rapper that, that was also in a situation like that? He was detained in the country for some time for a nominal, nominal amount of like marijuana or something like that. It's like, you you should know the rules and you can have a whole conversation about the morality, the ideology behind the rules. And that's a separate conversation, whether or not Russia should care about um, uh, a woman carrying a personal amount of uh, of marijuana. Like I, I would imagine that most of us on this call, certainly I don't feel like that's a big deal. But at the same time, it doesn't matter if you're going to another country because they move differently. They have different rules. And I don't think anybody as a general rule should ever go to a an airport with marijuana on them. That's just a bad idea. In Russia. A, yeah. In anywhere. Russia. Yeah. Don't like I wouldn't I wouldn't fly from Miami to Chicago with with I wouldn't even I'm not, I'm not going to the airport with it. like I'm just not even going to deal with it. Um, I, I feel for the woman. I hope. Like you said, it, it, it's it's kind of a political thing at this point. And um, I hope she she gets back home. I hope she gets back home safely. But, uh, you know, I, I hope it's a cautionary tale for anybody else who would decide to just do something like that when they're traveling internationally. Well, different severity. But as Rich mentioned, another professional athlete in some hot water, Calvin Ridley, the NFL has suspended the Atlanta Falcons wide receiver the 2022 season for gambling on NFL games. And kind of kind of a lot like what Dustin was just saying, Rich, you you just you can't do that. You knew the rules, right? I mean, that's a high profile rule. There's been a couple other examples of of NFL players in particular being thrown out of the game for gambling, right? And, and obviously the league, despite the fact that they're in bed literally with gambling companies now more than ever making billions of dollars, the league has been very vocal in saying, you can't gamble. You're a professional athlete. We can't give the image that, we can't project the image that you're affecting games and competitiveness is affected because you might have a stake in the outcome. Don't gamble. Well, Calvin Ridley did that, albeit for a small amount, like, like you know, not dissimilar to, to, to Griner, a very small amount, $1,500 parlay bet. We always try to look at things from a legal perspective on this show. Uh, what's the legal angle here? Well, inevitably, I think Calvin Ridley, although he's handled it, I think, you know, uh, with humor, we saw his tweet where he said, you know, I'll bet you 1500 bucks or whatever the case is that I'm not a gambling addict, which was pretty, pretty interesting. Um, inevitably, it'll lead to litigation, right? And we just saw Antonio Brown 
you know, famously uh, kicked off or left the sidelines of the Bucks in the middle of the game, hired a lawyer suing the Bucks uh, for for breach of contract, among other things. I guarantee you that Ridley will sue the NFL. And the question then becomes, as it frequently does when professional athletes sue their professional sports organizations, is is there a legal basis for do, for doing so? And the answer, short order, is is no. You know, Calvin Ridley signed uh, a contract with the NFL, and that contract, every one of them has a you know, clause uh, uh, that says, forget the law, right? You have to act in a way that we say you have to act. And if you don't do that, then by signing this contract, you agree to the penalties. Um, And it might not be consistent with due process. It might not even be consistent with your civil rights, but that's the price that you pay when you sign that contract. Uh, you know, that's the system he bought into. And the reward for that is, you know, a huge contract. So I don't think legally a lawsuit that he brings will have any uh, ground, but I think he'll probably file one. Tina, what are your what are your thoughts? I mean, I agree. And then it'll ultimately probably settle, right? Because no one really wants the nuisance of a lawsuit. But I agree with you. I mean, this is like a strict liability type of thing. You can't gamble a little or a lot, you either gamble or you don't, and it's either a breach of contract or it isn't. It's it's really a very open and shut thing to me. I mean, these personal conduct policies, Dustin, is what we're talking about. And it's kind of interesting when you compare, again, being thrown out for a year, um, which I think the value, Joe, is what, 11 million of his contract, right? Uh, versus a $1,500 bet, maybe the worst bet in the history of betting, uh, uh-huh. you know, 11 million for 15. But when you compare this penalty to what others have done, you kind of got to question you know, uh, whether the punishment fits the crime. He, you know, he wasn't betting on his own game, I think. When you compare it to like famous NFL penalties, like Michael Vitt, you know, dogfighting didn't result in in, in this kind of thing. Um, Joe, uh, uh, Adrian Peterson was beating his kid with a piece of wood with a switch. And I think he got four games, six games kind of thing. So Dustin, you know, you kind of question whether uh, the penalty fits the crime, but by the same token, NFL takes gambling pretty seriously, obviously. Yeah. And, and like, and this is, you could have a, I could, I could write a, a long piece about this, but I feel like the NFL is no bastion of, of morality and, and, and they never should be held to that standard because, like you said, there are a lot of superstars who've done a lot of horrible things in their personal lives, right? Um, there, there are no bylaws in the NFL, to my knowledge, about uh, domestic abuse. I don't know. I don't know. I could be wrong. Um, but if there are very specific rules about gambling, then, you know, it's, it's one of, it kind of reminds me of the Shakari Richardson thing, right? Where she, um, you know, her using a little bit of marijuana, basically, you know, hampered her entire trajectory toward the Olympics. Right. Um, if you know the rules, it doesn't matter. Again, it doesn't matter what the rules are, how unfair they are. There's a whole separate conversation. If you know the rules and you can easily not break the rules, then, yeah, like you said, a $1,500 bet and you've given up how much money because you got caught. Like, you know, people break rules all the time. People go a little faster on the highway. People, you know, try to, you know, maybe bend a few numbers on their their taxes. But it's like, OK. If you get caught, you need to deal with the consequences. So then what's the likelihood of an NFL star getting caught gambling on an NFL? Probably pretty high. Somebody is going to drop a dime somewhere and it also makes it not worth it. So 
whether or not the punishment fits the crime, I'll punt on that. But I did. I think it was pretty stupid what he did. So, yeah. Nice, nice pun there, Dustin. I <laughs> that as well. Uh, artist Sammy Switch is questioning where Ed Sheeran got the shape of his hit song "Shape of You." And Tina, this has been a four-year legal fight. Yeah, so our buddy Ed Sheeran is once again in court fighting off copyright infringement claims. And as you mentioned, Joe, this has been an ongoing four-year battle. He's not fighting it alone. He's fighting it alongside Snow Patrol singer Johnny McDade and Steve Mack, who is um, his real name is Stephen McCutcheon, and he's a producer. Um, And they all work together on the song Shape of You. Um, This is not Sheeran's first rodeo when it comes to dealing with copyright infringement. Um, his legal fun started with another song photograph back in 2016. And then a couple of years later, he was sued for hundred million dollars for his song thinking out loud. So in this latest case, um, Sheeran's actually litigating in London before it's high court. Um, and on the other side are the songwriters, Sammy Shokri and Ross O'Donohue. Um, Sammy switch is as Joe mentioned, what Shokri is better known as. And O'Donohue is the producer. They're claiming that Shape of You sounds a lot like the song Oh My. And just for some context here, and I'm sure that this is very relevant in some of the decisions that have been made about this lawsuit, Shape of You has obviously been a huge hit. And it became the first Spotify track to hit 3 billion streams. Um, Until this case gets resolved, the Performing Rights Society has said that there will be no royalties for Sharon McDade or McCutcheon um, as long as this dispute is ongoing. And I'm sure that they're out of a huge chunk of change as a result. Sharon and his team actually started this whole thing by filing what we call a declaratory judgment a few years ago um, and really seeking the court to say that there was no copyright infringement. And it's this lawsuit um, that was really um, the, the, the response to trying to get the court to, to say that. And this often happens. I deal with similar issues a lot in my practice. Um, when cease and desist letters start flying, flying around, sometimes you have potential defendants who try to strike first. This trial is expected to last um, three weeks. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Sheeran and his team ultimately try to settle this. Um, we've seen a number of these cases go to verdict over the last year or two. Um, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you know, this is what happens when you're a superstar and you make a ton of money and there's just a really like it's, you know, a sliding scale here and a slippery slope. We see a lot of sampling, a lot of borrowing, a lot of influence, uh, particularly these days in music, Rich. So, you know, I'm sure Ed's going to have a few more of these before too long. We got to go quick because we're running out of time. So I'm just going to give you the jury. I'm going to give you the jury in this case, uh, a couple of samplings here with our very uh, high tech, uh, uh, music playing system here. Ben's probably going to kill us, but all right. So this is uh, Exhibit A. You ready? <laughs> Can't hear that. It's going Barely. in and out. Barely. Uh, play that for yourself. But yeah, you know the the takeaway here is pretty simple. Tina, never trust a ginger. Is my you know <laughs> it's a legal theory that has served me well over the course of my career and. Uh, I don't know. If you're in the jury and you know that Ed Sheeran's been sued three separate times in like five years, I don't know, maybe where there's smoke, there's fire. And we've covered these cases over and over again. They're fun and they are fun when you compare them. But, uh, you know, all music is derivative. I mean, there's only at some point so many new ways you could come up with to sing 
a song and uh you know people are getting suited all the time but i don't know steve quickly steve dustin uh would you guys be uh, you know would you focus on the fact that others have sued ed sheeran before or would you chalk that up to hey is ed sheeran high profile defendant he's gonna get sued regardless of that whether there's merit or not yeah, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, Rich. I took the time to go back and listen to these songs and all these cases he's had and been accused of this. And I gotta tell you, I'm no musician, but I think he's been guilty every time. Ah, here we go. I think right. he's, he's brilliant. He takes the average and makes it incredible. <laughs> I May mean, I really like him, but you know, you still have to give some acknowledgement to you know that the base who started that. So all right, I so Tina. Tina, three billion streams, a shape of you. What's that worth? Depends on what the royalty rate is, but I'm sure it's worth a lot of money. I mean, are we talking, uh, are we talking uh, in the in the hundreds of millions? I mean, yeah, definitely in the millions, many millions. All right. All right. Joe. All right. Uh, Rich, when is Legal Faceoff going to get its first billboard? Because there's there's a vacancy, maybe only in Texas, but I want one with like a swinging arm that like comes down justice for you on legal face. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's actually an interesting case. Uh, I'll summarize it quickly. There's a billboard in Texas that says that Thomas Henry, who's a San Antonio personal injury lawyer, uh, got a one point two five billion. That's billion with a B verdict judgment. It says that he secured uh, for an alleged sexual assault victim. Now, the, the, the caveat there and why we're talking about it is because it doesn't also state that the client didn't actually get a penny. Um, and that is legal in Texas. As of July 1st of last year, you can in Texas advertise a verdict or a judgment without also saying that your client did not actually collect. What happened in this case, long story short, is uh, the attorneys, I mean, speaking, we've had some like stories of incompetent attorneys. The attorney didn't show up for trial. And the uh, uh, a judgment was entered against him. That's what happens when you don't show up for a trial. Uh, so the court entered a verdict. And the attorney, in this case, who was defending this victim of alleged victim of sexual assault, had a pre-made order out. And it said, I think, a billion dollars for uh, compensatory damages and, and you know, another point two for punitive or vice versa. It doesn't really matter. The judge signed it. And now he's got a judgment order. And typically... You know, to enforce a judgment order, you do things like attach liens to the property and you do something to enforce the order. The attorney in this case didn't do any of that. So his client got nothing, uh, has said that to this day has never seen a penny, even though he's holding a piece of paper that says he's owed $1.25 from this other guy. Uh, Dustin, go ahead on your thoughts here. Um, I, I kind of missed I kind of missed what. Uh, what he was getting at. So I didn't necessarily have a, uh, I didn't necessarily have a, a, a feedback for what he was saying. Cause he kept breaking up. So. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to jump in here, Joe. Yeah. And then I think we're going to have to jump to the next story because I, I have to leave for an sure, appointment. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, this story, I mean, in my mind, while technically he did end up getting this judgment, ultimately I think people who look at this, the average um, reader of this billboard are going to think that somehow there's somebody out there who ended up with uh, you know, 1.25 billion or, or some close um, amount to that amount um, by virtue of this verdict. And they're going to make decisions to hire this guy. Um, and I, I think having this kind of advertising, there's a reason why lawyer advertising is so closely regulated. Apparently, 
in every state but Texas. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it would never fly in most places and there's a reason for it. Yeah, I mean, I think the obvious, sorry for the cutout there, but Dustin, the obvious reason is like Tina said, you look at this ad and you think, well, if he got 1.25 billion for his client, that he could probably do that. For Wait till that hires him and learns that, oh yeah, the guy, get, you know, the client never got a penny. Well, I mean, I, it, oh, I think it depends on how you look at advertising. I mean, I, I, I know, I think we as reasonable people understand that um, when you look at an advertisement and you see this, you know, this, this, this really nice result for this case that that's not results, not typical, or you'll see that in the fine print star results, very type of situation. And so, you know, I, I would never look at somebody's legal settlement and assume that I would have the same results, even if, if my, the particulars of my case were very similar. When we lost Rich on his connection, I was wondering if someone drove into his house and maybe knocked his <laughs> router down. I mean, pretty. I think he's there. Pretty believable. Yeah. <laughs> pretty believable, like the 38-year-old man in Florida who accidentally did that three different times. Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? Oh, you know, so we talk about Texas and Florida a lot on legal face-offs. So this Florida man was arrested after a woman called 911 to report that he was repeatedly crashing into her house. She start, she, it started with her hearing a loud bang, heard someone um, shouting multiple F-bombs, saw some guy crashing his car into her house, um, as she said, on purpose. Um, and apparently this guy was listening to Miley Cyrus's wrecking ball as his <laughs> theme while he was engaging in said conduct. So when asked to explain why he was engaging in such conduct, his response was, my foot slipped. Um, now, there are multiple interpretations for what he meant by that, and no one really knows whether his foot slipped three times or if his foot slipped once and he and it resulted in three separate impacts or if he just made it all up and listened to Wrecking Ball three times. Um, but he did say that he knew this woman and he was trying to send her a message. I don't know whether it's this part of the story that I find most um, head scratching or if it's the fact that in Florida, they have to go through all these different contortions under the law to know what to charge this guy with. So apparently he's been charged with two felony counts, criminal mischief and shooting into or throwing deadly missiles into dwellings. Now we could talk about this all day. And unfortunately we only have a couple more minutes, but this whole notion of comparing a car to a missile and that is that being the legal analysis that needs to be done to, uh, to address this kind of conduct just will leave me scratching my head for a while, I think, Rich. Well, you got to give credit to the prosecutors, you know, uh, for broadly interpreting the statute that uh, defines deadly, you know, throwing deadly missiles into dwellings to fit this alleged crime. You know, uh, on the other hand, probably a good example of uh, government overzealousness in charging someone. But, yeah, I mean, uh, this guy was uh, just by accident revving his engine into this dwelling multiple times uh exactly mm. steve all right i think florida always right. seems to get florida, florida always seems to give us the greatest uh, stories like legal, they do Rich. crazy legal this stories this guy's right where he belongs in jail no one's gonna buy that junk i would say this though had the lady had a pistol this would make a very interesting stand your ground case ah you see yeah <laughs> Changing Good the point. facts up on us, Steve. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, Dustin, we promised to end the show with a roundtable on uh, our favorite horror films of all time. You and I will exchange text all hours of the night comparing, you know, maybe not everyone's favorite, maybe uh, some uh, some underground, uh, little-known horror films that would shock and revile most people. But, Dustin, if you had to pick one as your favorite horror film of all time, what would that be? Uh, the, the original Halloween has been my favorite horror movie for many moons and it has yet to be dethroned so yeah okay classic uh joe favorite horror film of all time i'm definitely more of a, a thriller fan than a horror or you know anything gory or sci-fi it just kind of like loses my interest uh i really liked is it i don't know if it's strangers or the strangers but you know believable thriller type movie that's that's what else yeah. like. tina so Dustin took my all-time favorite, which was Halloween. But I have to say, if we're talking about the scary value, um, I still get so scared by the ring to the point where I have to watch it by myself because David won't watch it with me, which kind of defeats the purpose because that's a movie I want to watch with someone because I find it really scary. Okay. The ring classic. Uh, I assume the American version, not the Japanese version we're talking about. But Steve, uh, favorite horror movie of all time. Rich, I'll date myself here, but anything back from the 40s and old black and white with their Frankenstein. Mm, classic. Well, Halloween, I mean, we're all unanimous that Halloween still, I mean, to this day when I watch Halloween, it uh, it scares the bejesus out of me. It's so incredibly well-made, but I'm going to pick the, another classic, The Shining. Uh, even though I'm with you, Joe, that I my horror films, as Dustin and I talk, talk about all the time, I have to be, it has to be a, I have to believe it could happen. So I'm not a big fan of like supernatural stuff, but the exception is The Shining because, uh, you know, I watched that when I was maybe six and uh, forever was imprinted on me. And I've now turned that, my daughter onto The Shining. I, I showed it to her when she was younger than six and uh, it's her favorite movie. So, uh, you know, all work, Joe, and no play, as you know, makes Jack a dull boy. Ed Sheeran, Florida Law, and horror movies. We cover it all here on the Legal Face-Off <laughs> podcast. Big thanks to Steve and Dustin here on Legal Grab Bag, along with our earlier guests on the show. Our producers, Yvonne Barbosa, Emily Flores, and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Face-Off podcast. And please give us five stars as well. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Legal Face-Off. We got it. And we got it. We got to deliver on our teaser. I almost forgot. Our teaser, Joe, is that our next episode in oh. two weeks on March 22nd will be the first ever live in person with a live audience edition of Legal Face Off. We've talked about it for a long time. We're finally doing it. And uh, the subject is a very timely one. And we're very honored to have an incredible panel of uh, African-American females in the law. The title is Black Women and the Law. We'll be talking about uh, diversity in our profession and uh, some of the obstacles that uh, these individuals have faced in achieving their career objectives. And we'll also, of course, be talking about the nomination of uh, Judge Jackson to the Supreme Court. So that will be on again March 22nd. It will be at uh, Fame in uh, River North. And we're very excited to have an incredible panel. Okay, so stay tuned for that. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.